Good morning. Won't you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 20. You can find that on page 981 in your pew Bibles. Pastor Bruce is going to be continuing in his encounter series, uh, teaching us about an ambitious mom who encountered Jesus. And I, I, I venture to say it's going to be a sight better than my uh, Mother's Day sermon a few years back on Amos chapter 4. Look that up later. Again, we're at uh, Matthew chapter 20, um, verses, uh, starting in verse 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great, great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father God, we just thank you that you did come and that you came to make possible reconciliation between, between us and you. God, just thank you for, um, for your word, and, and thank you that, that as a good father, you, you don't leave us just to flounder, but you teach us and guide us. Father, be with Pastor Bruce today. As he speaks to us, help us to have um, open ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, on this Mother's Day, let's begin with a question for moms. And that is, what are your dreams? What are your desires for your kids? And if you're a grandmother, what are your desires and dreams for your grandkids? Like most moms, I'm sure you want the best for your kids. Like most grandmothers, you want the best for your grandkids. Because you love them, you want to see them succeed. You want to see them thrive in life. And more importantly, hopefully, you also want your kids and grandkids to to trust Jesus Christ for their salvation. And you want to see them follow Jesus in their life. And as we continue now in our series, Encounters with Jesus, here we meet a mom who wanted the very best for her, her two sons. Because she loved them. She was proud of them and had great dreams for them, this mom comes to Jesus with a a rather audacious request. She asked the Lord that her sons would sit on either side of Jesus in the kingdom of God. In other words, she wanted her two sons to have the places of highest prestige and power in the kingdom. No small dreams here, would you say? This mom had rather ambitious dreams of greatness and glory for her two sons. 
Now, let's face it, we live in a rather ambitious world today. It's why people want to be the best, whether it's in school or or sports or in their careers. It's why we debate who is the greatest of all time in a variety of different sports. It's why we even debate and have conversations about who's the the greatest team of all time. And, And it's here... You know, it's just we live in this ambitious world. Some people are, are driven by ambition. But because we also live in a fallen world of sin, we oftentimes see the ugly side of ambition all too often. But is there a good side to ambition? I mean, can ambition be something holy, uh, even something honoring to the Lord? Or should we always be suspicious of anyone who is ambitious. Dave Harvey, who wrote the book, Rescuing Ambition, notes that there is this quirky awkwardness when someone is described as ambitious. We're not quite sure if it is meant as a a compliment for that person or a warning to avoid them. And despite what you may think, ambition in and of itself, listen, it is not evil. If you don't have ambition, why bother getting out of the bed in the morning, right? You may as well just stay there, roll over, and sleep all day. As one pastor and author says, ambition is merely a strong desire regarding the future. And as such, it can be positive or negative, good or bad, righteous or evil. It can be very useful if we are ambitious for the right things. So what happens, though, when ambition encounters Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we find here in this particular encounter this morning. And Jesus shows us through this encounter what ambition for greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. You might also be wondering, well, who is this mom that encounters Jesus? This this ambitious mom, we might call her. Who is this mom, this ambitious one? Matthew tells us that she is the mother of Zebedee's sons in verse 20. And we know earlier that Matthew tells us in chapter 4 in verse 21 that Zebedee's two sons are none other than James and John, uh, two fishermen who left their father's fishing business to follow Jesus Christ. And and then you fast forward in uh, the Gospels and a comparison of the women at the foot of the cross suggests that their mother, that is James and John's mom, might be the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we don't know that for sure, but it's likely, and if if so, if that is true, this means that this mom is none other than Jesus' aunt, and that James and John are his cousins. So with that background in mind, let's dive into this mother's encounter with Jesus. And as we do, here's what you're going to notice, that this is actually... Two encounters with Jesus. The first encounter involves this mother and her two sons, which then launches us into a second encounter involving these two sons and the rest of the disciples. But both encounters here focus on what ambition looks like in the kingdom of God or what ambition for greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. So let's unpack this encounter here, these two encounters. First of all, what we see is that Jesus corrects, gently corrects a mother's ambition for her two sons. Notice again 
this mom's ambition. We see it in verses 20 and 21 when Matthew tells us, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. In kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he, that is Jesus, said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So what exactly is this mother asking Jesus to do for her sons? And what we find here, we might summarize it this way, she's really asking that she wants her sons to be great in the kingdom of God. How? By sitting in these seats of highest honor and power on either side of Jesus on his throne. So she really, she what wants is her sons to be great. She wants her sons to be great in the kingdom of God by sitting on either side. And so just picture this encounter. Here comes this mother with her two boys, but James and John, they are not kids at this time. They are grown men, at least in their 20s, probably older than 30. In fact, the parallel passage of this same encounter in Mark chapter 10 makes it very clear that this was their question. James and John's question. It was their ambition as well. But here in Matthew's account of the encounter, they are hiding behind their mama. Kind of makes you wonder if Jesus might have rolled his eyes and thought to himself, really, guys? Seriously? You're you're getting your mom to ask this question for you? And so this mom comes to Jesus with her two sons and She does all the talking here. She asks that her sons be given these these seats of highest honor and power in the kingdom. Now, you need to understand that this was not uncommon then in those days of Jesus, just as it is true today, for people to use their connections with family and friends as a means to gain leverage in, in some environment like a job or sports or whatever, to gain greater positions for themselves. And so there's a lot of truth with that saying that you're familiar with. It's not what you know, but who you know. How often are positions filled with the person with the, the best connections, not necessarily the best qualified. And so even if this mom, it seems like she's using that family connection, she's the aunt of Jesus, and these two sons of her are Jesus' cousins, and so she's playing on that leverage now. But even if she's not using her connection with Jesus as his aunt to gain some prominent positions for her two sons, it is nonetheless quite an ambitious request. Maybe maybe she heard that Jesus has just given the keys, keys of the kingdom to Peter back in Matthew chapter 16, and now she's wondering to herself, well, what are my boys going to get in the kingdom? And so now she moves in to outflank the rest of the disciples in favor of her two sons. You have to admit, there's a certain audaciousness when she even says to Jesus, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound much like a request. It sounds more like a demand. Jesus, do me a favor. 
Make sure that my two boys have good seats in the kingdom, front row seats, first class, on either side of you, ruling and reigning in the kingdom. Kind of makes you wonder, does this mom even know what she's asking? I mean, sitting at the king's right hand and the king's left hand are the two highest ranks in the kingdom. The one on the right hand being second in command, the one on the left being third in command. And so this mom is insisting that Jesus now make her two sons the two highest ranking officials in the kingdom right under Jesus Christ. And and so she tries at the same time, you got to give it to her, not to be too demanding about this. She does give Jesus the freedom, after all, to choose which one will sit on which side. Now, you know, I know at this point in the encounter, it would be easy to, to condemn this mother for her ambitious dreams of glory and greatness for her two sons. But before we criticize her ambition, let's first acknowledge that her ambition is very commendable. In fact, notice this in your notes. Both the boys and their mother's ambition is commendable. And the reason it's commendable is this. They believe with all their hearts in the reign of Jesus Christ on the throne in the kingdom of God. you got to concede that their ambitious question, it grows from their faith in Jesus and his kingdom. Now, it is true that James and John were were looking out for their own interests, certainly not the interests of the other disciples, which goes directly contrary to what the Apostle Paul will later say in Philippians chapter 2, right? Remember that what he said. Paul says, hey, don't look out for your own interests, but look out for everyone else's interests. Certainly not only your own interests. And, and that's what exactly these guys are doing here, these two brothers. They're looking out for their own interests first and foremost, not the other disciples. And their mom, listen, she is putting her son's glory and greatness above the other disciples. So when she asks, well, which thrones will my sons occupy? We need to acknowledge that it is rather a selfish question. But it is also a believing question. You see, they believe in the reign of Jesus' kingdom. Now, at this point in time in the disciples' lives and Jesus' life here, not many people believe this about Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus did not look or act like a king. Too many people, to uh, many people, Jesus just seemed like another rabbi who claimed to be some kind of Messiah king. Jesus seemed far removed from being a king with a kingdom. But this mom, Listen, in her faith, she saw the day when Jesus would indeed reign as king in his kingdom on earth. And her two sons certainly believe what Jesus said in Matthew 19, just the the chapter prior to this. Jesus had just told the disciples in verse 28 that they were going to reign with him and they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the very fact now that James and John desire the highest ranking thrones on either side of Jesus shows that they took Jesus' promise in the previous chapter very serious. They truly believed Jesus was a king. They truly believed that they were going to reign with him. 
The problem is they don't have a clue about the nature of this kingdom Jesus is talking about. You see, they expected that kingdom to be a physical kingdom right then and there, and they would overthrow the Roman kingdom, and Jesus would be king on on the earth right then and there, and they would be in their glory and greatness reigning with him. They didn't understand the kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about. More than that, the problem is that this mom and her two sons, they underestimated in a great way the cost of following Jesus. And at the same time, they overestimated their own importance, their own significance, while totally misunderstanding the nature of kingdom greatness. So what should we learn from this? What, what here now, what do we take away? Well, I think one lesson we can take away is that we need to recognize that true faith, believing faith, and real error on our part can be mixed in the heart of the best Christians. Listen, great faith and even great ignorance can coexist in the same brain And so we need to be aware of that, and more than that, we need to be teachable when we're confronted with that. The second lesson I think we can take away is is as much as we may shake our heads in dismay and even disappointment in this mom and her two sons, just consider what Charles Spurgeon said about this encounter. We may question ourselves as to whether we think as much of our Lord as they did. That is what Charles Spurgeon is saying. He's asking the question of us here now, even today. Do we believe that Jesus will reign? Do we give a a passing thought to the kingdom of God that will be established on this earth one day? And that we will reign with Jesus. And so on one level, the ambition of this mom and her two sons, listen, it is very commendable. They believed in Jesus Christ. They believed in the reign of Jesus Christ on his throne in the kingdom of God. Do we believe that? But at the same time, on another level, their ambition is also very regrettable. And the reason it's regrettable is because they are blind to the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, the context here of their ambitious question makes it especially regrettable. In fact, they are so blind about all of this that Jesus tells them in verse 22, you don't even know what you're asking. You see, all they can see at this moment in time is the reign of Jesus on his throne, but they are blind to his imminent death on the cross. In fact, this is right after Jesus has just huddled together with his disciples, telling them that he is headed to his death. And Jesus just told them this right before this passage in verses 17 through 19. If you have your Bibles, look at it with me. Notice what Jesus says. Turn to Matthew 20. This encounter starts in verse 20. And we find what Jesus says here right before that in verses 17 through 19 where it says, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and why was he going up to Jerusalem? Well, notice it. He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then notice immediately after that, verse 20, it says, Then, what Matthew is doing with that, he's drawing a contrast between what Jesus just said prior about going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world, then, then the mother of Zebedee's sons. And what you see is a contrast between Jesus' ambition in verses 17 through 19 and their ambition in verses 20 through 24. You see, Jesus here is going to be lifted up on a cross and all these boys all they can think about is being lifted up to thrones. I mean, talk about no sense of timing on their behalf. It's terrible timing, their question that comes up. They're oblivious to Jesus' mission to die for our sins. By the way, this is not the first, nor is it the second, but this is actually the third time so far that Jesus has predicted his violent death. Jesus has just also told the disciples that, that the first will be last, and the last will be first. He said that in the previous chapter, verse 30. In what do James and John and their mom ask Jesus? To be first in the kingdom. They just don't get it. Despite these bloody warnings about Jesus' death, and despite Jesus telling them that the first must be last, James and John asked to be seated in places of highest honor and power. They just don't get it. But surprisingly, and this is what you got to love about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, because this is not how I would respond if this was my two boys asking me this. I would have been a little irritated. I probably would have raised my voice a little in rebuking them. Wouldn't that be right? Yes, Jack's nodding his head. So surprisingly, even though their ambition here is regrettable, Jesus' response, he is very gentle with them in his response. In fact, he gently corrects their misguided ambition. In speaking primarily to James and John, since Jesus knew that they had been hiding behind the skirt of their mother to speak on their behalf, he declares in verse 22, you, that is to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Now again, what is disappointing to Jesus is not James and John. You've got to understand, Jesus loves these guys. He loves his 12 disciples, and he especially loves James and John, who were part of his inner circle. And what is disappointing to Jesus, rather, is their blind ambition. They don't know that kingdom greatness comes with inevitable cost. They don't know that to share in Christ's glory, one must share in his suffering. You see, they wanted recognition, not crucifixion. They focused on future honor rather than on present suffering. And so Jesus now gently corrects their misguided ambition by bringing to their attention, once again, the cost of kingdom greatness. 
And he does so by revealing something to them. Notice this in your notes. Jesus reveals that suffering is the high cost of greatness in God's kingdom. In other words, Jesus is telling these two disciples that greatness comes through suffering. In fact, Jesus' own greatness will come through suffering. And you've got to love the way Jesus reveals all this to these two men. James and John, it's interesting, it's ironic. They think they know what they're talking about. They think they know what they're asking Jesus, but Jesus says they don't. And so Jesus asked them in verse 22, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? It's also interesting that Jesus, when he called these two guys to follow him, he also gave them nicknames. Some of you might remember their nicknames. He calls them, you guys are sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. And now Jesus is bringing these sons of thunder down to earth with this cup question of his. And this cup, it signifies suffering. That's what Jesus means when he refers to this cup. Sometimes this cup in the Old Testament, it even refers to wrath and retribution and punishment. And you might even remember fast-forwarding in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus twice prayed to the Father, asking the Father if, quote, this cup of suffering could pass him by. And yet, we know that Jesus was willing to, to drink the cup of God's wrath when he died on the cross. And so now here, Jesus asked these two boys, James and John, if they can drink the, the cup that I am to drink, and they reply all too confidently, we can't, Lord. It's amazing. They don't hesitate. They don't contemplate Jesus' question here. They don't say, Jesus, time out. Can we pray about this? Can we think about this? Can I get some counsel on this? So it's no surprise when the cup of suffering came to these disciples, including James and John, just a little while later, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do they all do? Including James and John, they run away so that they did not drink the cup of suffering at that time. And yet later in their lives, they did did indeed drink that cup of suffering. These disciples... James, he drank the cup of martyrdom when he was beheaded by Herod. You can read about it in Acts chapter 12. In fact, James is said to be the very first martyr of these disciples. John was the last of them to die. John drank the cup of tribulation when he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he suffered and endured his tribulation. But at the moment of this encounter... They thought Jesus' cup was full of wine, not suffering. They thought the cup represented celebration, not crucifixion. And Jesus, I can just imagine, he kind of lets their ignorance just stand there before he then tells them in verse 23, oh, you will drink my cup. And then he says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that he isn't in charge of the seating arrangements in the kingdom of God. Even though he's the king and he's the host, 
but the Father handles the seating chart. Now, there's a great application here even for us, and that is this. Ultimately, all of our pursuits in life are under the Father's authority. All of our pursuits, all of our dreams, all of our desires. We may inform God of our dreams and our desires and our plans for our lives, but listen, wisdom will recognize that all of our ambitions must submit to the Father's will. Listen, our future is determined by God's will, not our own. It's God who determines who sits where in the kingdom, just as he determines even on earth now our paths in life. And so like Jesus, may we learn to say, not my will, but your will be done, Father. This first encounter, it shows us that ambition can be a rather blinding force as Jesus gently corrects the misguided ambition of a mom and her two sons. This second encounter shows that ambition now can also be a very divisive force. And that's where we see number two, where Jesus has to firmly redirect the disciples' ambition in God's kingdom. So in the first encounter, he corrects the misguided ambition, and now he has to firmly redirect the disciples' ambition. You can imagine what happened when the disciples overheard all of this talk of, her, of this mom and her two sons jockeying for greatness in the kingdom. In fact, see it for yourselves in verse 24. It says, they, that is these ten other disciples, they were indignant at the two brothers. Listen, ambitious people can be threatening, can't they? And the ambition of James and John here was threatening to these other disciples. But were they upset because these two brothers would ask such a, audacious question, or, or were these disciples, were they angry because these two brothers got to Jesus first? Well, if you know the disciples, the answer is rather obvious. Notice this, the disciples' ambition. These disciples, they are, they are moved to indig, indignation, as Matthew tells us, against these two brothers because of their own ambition to be great in the kingdom. Now, this should not surprise us. This is nothing new here. Listen, the disciples have squabbled before about who's the greatest among them, and they would squabble again even after this. And so no doubt the disciples had been saying to themselves, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the greatest of us all? And now they are moved with indignation against James and John because they, they also wanted these seats for themselves. And so before all this indignation escalates into a, a full-on brawl between the disciples, Jesus gathers these disciples together to challenge them to now channel their ambition in a very new direction. And basically what he tells them is the way up is down in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus uses this encounter, this this ambition of this mom and these two disciples, and now the indignation of these other disciples, he uses all this as a teaching moment to tell the disciples about the standard of kingdom 
greatness. And what he reveals to them and to us is that serving is the high standard of greatness in God's kingdom. In other words, what Jesus says is that kingdom greatness, it is measured by kingdom service. Look what Jesus says in verses 25 and 27. Again, look at it for yourself. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now, again, this is amazing, and you just got to love this about our Savior, because what stands out here is that Jesus does not condemn the disciples' ambition for greatness. He doesn't treat their ambition as one of the seven deadly sins. In fact, verse 26 is often translated this way, whoever wants to become great among you, or whoever desires to become great among you. In other words, that question, that what Jesus says there, it is an invitation to the pursuit of greatness. It is not a condemnation of it. But at the same time, Jesus is redirecting their ambition for kingdom greatness. And he does it by redefining what true greatness looks like in God's kingdom. This is done by Jesus by contrasting the difference between the world's standard of greatness and Jesus' standard of greatness. And basically, Jesus says there's two different standards. You need to reject one and follow the other. Notice the first one to reject. It is reject the world's standard of greatness. Why? Because the world, they measure greatness this way. To be great is to be over people. And Jesus exposes the world's ambition for what it is here. It curves in on itself. It's top down. In fact, when ambition is corrupted by sin, it turns people into empire builders, launching wars, lording it over, and imposing one's authority. This is how ambition for greatness plays out in the world, and you are fully aware of that. The world pursues greatness through through pride. It pursues it through pressure, and most of all, it pursues it through power over people. And Jesus says, this is the world's way to greatness. But with one phrase, Jesus says, the way to greatness in the kingdom of God is completely different. It should not be so among you. And with that phrase, Jesus is imploring all of his followers, then and now today, He's basically saying reject the world's standard of greatness. And instead, follow my standard of greatness, which is to be great is to serve people, is not to be over people. Notice again what Jesus says in verses 26 and 27. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Jesus is posing a question here. It's a question we all need to take serious. It's a question we need to answer here this morning. Jesus is asking, you want to be great? He says, then be a servant. 
Jesus says, listen, do you want to be first? The first among all the greats. Then he says, then be a slave. In other words, Jesus is saying crystal clear right here that in God's kingdom, the way up is down. The way to greatness is by serving. What Jesus is doing here is he is revealing to us, he's telling these disciples and now us today, he's giving us a whole new paradigm in which to embrace as followers of Jesus Christ. And basically he's saying this, in this paradigm, the only valid ambition is the ambition to serve. And he's asking these disciples, as much as he's asking you and I here this morning, is your ambition to serve others? Is that your ambition? Because my standard in my kingdom, that is the only valid ambition. That's what matters. That's what counts. Now, I don't have to tell you how radical that is. I don't have to tell you how how radical counterculture this paradigm shift was then, just as it still is today. As one commentator writes, Douglas O'Donnell, our culture ceaselessly directs us up, 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 up. And so we must pray almost daily for wisdom and courage to go down, 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 down. It's no different in... James and John's day, still true in our day. People want celebrity status, not servant status. But Jesus says, it should not be so among you. In the you is disciples of Jesus Christ, those who claim to follow him as Lord and Savior. Dave Thomas, most of you are familiar with that name, the founder of Wendy's. How many of you eaten there? That's what I thought everybody had. He once appeared on the cover of their annual report dressed in a, a work apron holding a mop and a plastic bucket. And here's how he described that picture was taken of him. In fact, you can Google this picture. It is a, iconic. Um, I remember this picture when it came out, and here's how he described it. He says, I got my MBA long before my GED at Wendy's. MBA does not mean master of business administration. It means mop bucket attitude. That's what Jesus is giving us here, his new paradigm in the kingdom of God. He's given us a mop bucket attitude of serving. And he's lifting it up when the world puts it down. And he's reversing what the world puts up. And yet it is so easy to be really, really abstract here. It is easy to say, oh, yeah, I want to serve while we take care of ourselves, while we're like James and John, we look out for our own interests in the kingdom while neglecting others. In fact, Christians often hide behind their, quote, theology, and a number of us hide behind gift theology. That is, if we don't want to take a turn at humble service, especially Here at church, we simply say, well, it's not my gift. It's not my gift. My gift is to do this. 
I don't care what your gift is. We're all called to serve. And Jesus says, that is what is great in the kingdom of God. And so if you need some action steps here, let me give you three of them. On what mop bucket attitude means in the kingdom of God is simply this. Just serve whoever you can. Serve wherever you can. Number two. Number three, serve whenever you can. There you go. There's your action steps. And the reason we want to embrace this mop bucket attitude, this service attitude that Jesus is talking about, this upside down paradigm, the reason we go down, down, down is because Jesus himself went down, down, down. He descended into greatness. He went down to go up. This is the greatness of Jesus Christ. Listen, he is the ultimate example of true greatness with his own humble servanthood and sacrificial suffering. And isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, right after talking about in Philippians chapter 2, do not look out for your own interests, but the interests of others, Jesus, Paul immediately goes into the humility of Jesus Christ, the servanthood of Jesus Christ, when he said he became obedient to the point of death. And then what happens? God the Father exalts him above every name, where one day every name will bow down and worship him, and Jesus will be, as he is even now, King of kings and Lord of lords. He went down to go up, and Jesus saying, if you want greatness in my kingdom, then come follow me. This is the way to it. We see this greatness here in verse 28. It's the last verse. It's the last thing. It's how Jesus concludes this this whole encounter, he says in verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom, as a ransom for many. Now we expect to read it this way, the Son of Man came to rule. The Son of Man came to reign. And while that is true, we certainly don't expect to read the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life. And yet Jesus is the ultimate example here for us of true greatness in the kingdom with his humble servanthood and his sacrificial suffering. Listen, in his life here on this earth and in his death, he he waited on the world. He came to the table and he basically said to everyone, I am at your service. And to prove the point, immediately after this, you read about it in John chapter 13 and 14, Jesus washed his disciples' feet which was the menial task of a servant and slave to give them an example for all of us to follow. And then he died for sinners as a ransom for the many. Listen, that is humble service and sacrificial suffering. In fact, this little final phrase here, it brings us to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ when Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, it is a powerful word. We don't have time to to unpack all the the significance of that word there, but it refers to the the price paid to redeem a prisoner or slave. And here Jesus, he offered not money, but himself to redeem us, to ransom us from the bondage to sin and its power and even the consequences of sin. And so do you see the picture here that Jesus is drawing for us? He's basically saying, listen, when you were born, you were a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin. But through my death, 
my death on the cross and my resurrection, Jesus paid to set many free from that sin and that bondage and the consequences of it. And the question is, the most important question here this morning is, are you included in the many? Jesus did... I'll simply say this, you are, you can be confident that you are included in that many if you respond to Jesus in true saving faith. Where you repent of your sin, you acknowledge your need for the Savior Jesus Christ, and you humbly come to him, save me, Lord, forgive me, redeem me out of the bondage of my sins through your faith in the person in work of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Now, as we come to a close, it's easy as we back up to this first encounter with this mom and her two sons. I get it. It is easy to look down on this mom's ambition. As she comes trotting up to Jesus with such a, a bold, audacious request on behalf of her two sons. But we need to remember, Jesus never condemned this mom's ambitious dreams of greatness for her two sons. And though Jesus corrects her ambition, it is still commendable nonetheless. Why? Because she believes with all her heart in Jesus and his coming kingdom. And she simply wants her sons to have a significant part in the kingdom of God. There is something to take away from that, folks. Mothers especially. And you grandmothers. So let me ask you, moms, what do you believe here this morning? And what do you desire for your kids? Grandmothers, what do you desire for your grandkids? What is it you are wanting and asking Jesus for? Here's the Mother's Day question we ought to ponder. Moms, what are you asking the Lord on behalf of your children and grandchildren? I might phrase the question this way. Moms, grandmas, are your desires for your kids, listen to me here, are your desires, your ambitions, your wants for your kids, are they kingdom related or are they more world related? Remember this world, this world we see with our eyes, this world we touch, we put money into, this world is passing away. But the kingdom of God will never, never end. So I ask you parents, and especially you moms, which one do you think is more important? Jesus said it this way, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? One pastor and author, he says, he says the priority of parents is not to get their children into Harvard, but into heaven. We could add to that the priority of parents is not to ensure that their kid earns a scholarship to college, but 
learns the discipleship of servanthood. And so on this Mother's Day, let this mother of Zebedee's sons inspire each mom here this morning to boldly ask the Lord for kingdom-related requests on behalf of her own children and grandchildren. The 19th century theologian Robert Louis Dabney wrote, and he wrote it many, many years ago, and yet it rings true today. Listen to it. He says, the education of children for God is the most important business done on earth. It is the one business for which the earth exists. To it, all politics, all war, all literature, all money-making ought to be subordinated. And every parent especially ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making their own calling and election sure, this is the end for which they are kept alive by God. This is their task on earth. Mom, what's your ambition for your kids? And more than that, moms, what are you going before God Almighty and asking on behalf of your kids? And are your requests before God, are they more world-related things? Is that your ambition and your desires for your kids? Stuff that revolves around the world is going to pass away. It doesn't mean a hill of beans. Or are your ambitions for your kids kingdom-related? And are you teaching them what it means to be great in the kingdom of God? It's about enduring suffering when it comes, and it will come. It is about serving in the kingdom of God. And this culture we live in knows nothing about serving. And yet we as Christians, we as Christ followers, as parents, this is what we have to be teaching our children about in our grandchildren. And yet we have to model it as well, just as Jesus modeled. takes grace because we all fall at this our own natures our own pride we want to be first in this kingdom we want to look out for our own interests and that's true of all of us and so we need to beg the grace of god to do a work in our own hearts to have right priorities and so moms here is a prayer i offer you to pray on behalf of your kids and grandkids Lord, give me children and grandchildren who know Jesus and follow him in their lives. Grant them saving faith to be in your kingdom and the grace to be great in your kingdom through humble service and suffering. Your heads bow. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us here this morning. Thank you for this encounter and the ambition of this mom. And, and while... It's regrettable on one hand. It is commendable. She believes in you. And she believed in your kingdom and that you would reign. And may we have that same faith and that same belief. May you bless each person as they respond to your word, and especially to moms here today. May you be gracious today to grant to many repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. May you give us many godly homes and grace to moms as they seek to fulfill the valuable role of motherhood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.